Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I am here with Zucchini Bread. Today, our guest is Professor Dr. Mark Paustian, Pastor Mark Paustian. Uh, he is a professor of uh, communication, and uh, do you still teach Hebrew? I do. And Hebrew at, at MLC. And I actually never had him thing. for Hebrew, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's a relatively new course. We call it Advanced Christian Rhetoric. And half the semester is apologetics, and half the, mes- half the semester is um, homiletics, basically, uh, students writing devotions for evening chapel. So that's the new thing in my repertoire, which I love. Yeah, let's just jump right in with that. Is Since you, um, is, that, is that only for uh, pastor track students, or are there females in that? Um, I have a lady come in now and then just because we have to kind of tailor the course in that case. Um, but mostly it's pastor track guys. Yeah. I've been seeing for years, we send guys up into the pulpit for evening chapel with almost no training and kind of leave it to chance whether there's a good experience or not and so on. And so the main thing is that this kind of scratches that itch. But the apologetics piece is, is really enjoyable too. Very good. And uh, Michael, you're starting up some apologetics type stuff at our uh church with the catechism course yeah so uh we have we're going to be starting eighth grade apologetics at our grade school mark so what kind of why do you think apologetics is so important i know you've got your prepared to answer books and those are really apologetic so why would you say apologetics for i think let's say for our young people our seventh and eighth graders and the ones that jeremy teaches in high school first of all why why are those so important that is where I get my um, my passion from for the topic is sending kids off to the university and sending them off very, sometimes very vulnerable. You know, I don't think the university just destroys faith, period. There's more to say. It, it exposes kids that are maybe already disconnecting from the church before that, maybe as sophomores in high school, it exposes kids that are superficial. It's never occurred to them that anybody would ever dare to say Jesus never existed, you know, those kinds of things. Or a popular prof can say, well, the Bible, you know, nobody takes that book seriously anymore. And you think about the child who's never thought about that, never heard that before, especially um, if this young person is kind of by themselves out there. It just kind of hurts your heart to think about that. Um, and so the third thing the university does is it, ex- it uh, exposes those kids that don't have some strong Christian mentor to run to when the questions get hard. And so that really is where what it's about for me is not only maybe secondarily our outreach, I shouldn't say secondarily, but it just is mostly about those who are at risk. My, my daughter survived university and it was all about um, quiet kid, but she starts a campus ministry, just six kids meeting in a church basement. And so, you know, do we ever kind of tear our hearts open and say to young people, they're going to eat you alive if you don't stay connected to the word of God and to your community. They're going to eat you alive. And um, so that's kind of a long answer maybe to your question. I, yeah. I think it's I think it's two things, especially the resurrection of Jesus and the reliability of the New Testament. Those are the two core issues in my mind that we can make it that the word of God is not easily slapped out of kids' hands and that they won't easily fall for the profound misinformation out there. 
Yeah, so my for my eighth grade catechism class, because there isn't a lot of homework assigned to it, I've been giving them just real short apologetics questions to do uh, on their own with their parents. Sometimes they're kind of playfully debating each other in the classroom. And I usually set it up with telling this story about 10-year-old Timmy is out on a park bench one day and he's reading his Bible and a college student who has lost his faith, like you talked about, he comes along and he sees this young boy reading his Bible and he asks, well, what are you reading? And Timmy says, well, I'm reading Exodus and about how Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea and they walked through on dry dry land. And this college student is so excited because he's lost his faith because he's so smart now. And he, he is excited to, you know, destroy the faith of this 10 year old. So he said, <laughs> well, uh, you know, the water that Moses and the Israelites walked through, that was only a couple of inches. So it wasn't really a miracle. And Timmy's all distraught and the boy, the college student walks away and he's all proud of himself. And then he hears Timmy behind him cheering all excitedly. And the college student turns around, what are you excited about? He said, God performed another miracle. He just drowned all these Egyptians in two inches of water. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and I tell that story <laughs> to tell the, the college, to tell these seventh and eighth graders is like you said, Mark, people are going to be throwing things at you. All you have to know is you know more about the Bible as an eighth grader than they do as college students or adults is don't let that throw you just be ready to debate and then let the Holy spirit do the work. Okay. So I, I was going to ask uh, if you uh, a, a thought about um, small catechism, isn't that really kind of what Martin Luther was doing when he put those together is he was setting up a series of questions and answers so that you just got into the habit of, yeah, your faith is going to be questioned and here's how you answer it. Yeah, that's really at the heart and core of the liberal arts education is just questions and answers. It's dialectic. And I think that's excellent training for our kids. Absolutely. I think, you know, another approach to that um, question of the inches of water you can just learn to say, well, that's an interesting story. Why do you think that's true? <laughs> and people will quickly come to the end of what they can say about it. And as mm -hmm. you're saying, Michael, um, if kids have been grounded in the catechism and before that in Bible stories, they really are more prepared than they realize. So I, I love that. Yeah. Uh, like one of my favorite assignments that I give them that they give in class is uh, looking at the walls of Jericho coming down. And then to be able to defend uh, when people would say, well, there was no Jericho, there's no evidence. And then for them to be able to show from historical record, uh, you know, I give them some websites to look at and they'll find out, well, it looks like these walls all came crumbling down and maybe it was an earthquake. But even then to say, well, God could have miraculously used an earthquake at that exact time to knock the walls down. And then I'll, I'll I'll ask them too. And every once in a while, people will, students will be a student enough to find out that there was one wall portion of the wall that was standing. And then, well, why was that wall standing? Well, that's where Rahab and her family was. And then if they find the right websites, they'll be able to discover that it was probably springtime. They had just had the harvest because they found uh, food still in 
earthen jars. Well, that makes sense with the flax that was drying out on Rahab's house. That was she was able to hide the spies underneath. And then just to be able to do some research on their own and to use historical facts, not even having to get into the Bible, but prove, yeah, this is true. Now, well, I said it was true because God said it's true. Now let's read more about it. Mm -hmm. Very good. Sounds like the documentary Patterns of Evidence. Is that familiar to you? It is not. Oh, excellent. It makes the same points you make. Um, It's about the book of Exodus, especially. So Patterns of Evidence is really, really good. But even if, it, you know, even if it would be an earthquake or if you go with, I've heard things like that about the Jordan River had special, uh, it, it does funny things during different seasons of the year. And maybe that's why the water divided, you know, some kind of a naturalistic explanation like that. But you'd have to say, even if there's a naturalistic explanation, that's a really ironic time for that to happen, that earthquake or that, you know, uh, the, the water stopping on the Jordan River. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I feel like we've kind of gone a, a foot a little bit. Usually we like to ask our guests about, um, uh, gone, gone, gone off track. That's, that's better. Maybe gone off track. And, uh, we wanted to ask you about your, uh, uh, ministry that, uh, wh- where have you been before MLC? Yeah, I'm, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm a 2000 graduate from the seminary. I'm sorry, 1988 graduate from the seminary. And uh, my first call was to an exploratory mission. So church planting um, in the city of Rockford, Illinois. And so I did that for 12 and a half years uh, through the building project of a beautiful sanctuary and then came to MLC in the year 2000. Fantastic. Go, go ahead, Jeremy. No, I, I was just going to ask, what's it like to plant a church? <laughs> um, it, what can I say? I, I often put it this way. Um, when I do a personality test online, you know, answer the questions and score it at the end. Um, that's when the computer starts to smoke and sprockets fly out, which is to say they can't measure how introverted I am. I'm just really off the charts introverted. And so I'm not apologizing for that. It's a whole, you know, it's a whole other subject matter too, what that means to be introverted. But for this kind of work, there was some built-in, built-in challenge for sure to be, to be out there in that kind of way. First thing you do is knock on 2000 doors or whatever. So very, very challenging. Um, Externally, very blessed. I mean, God, I, I, I often tell myself, Mark, don't forget how it really was. You know, don't tell the story in your mind of just how effective I was as a missionary. It really is God blessing me and my inadequacy and blessing his word, blessing the gospel. And so it was it was a profound experience for me, very, I'll say difficult, painful on some levels, um, but also satisfying beyond words, you know, to be in a mission setting where the gospel is new to so many people. It's just a breath of fresh air. And so, yeah, I I wasn't maybe the best fit for pastorate, but I do I do miss those relationships. I often prayed, um, Lord, I'm willing to do this rest of my life. Not my will, but yours be done. If there's a better fit for my temperament, <laughs> um, please. And I think that really is what he did in letting me take on the academic life here at the college. So. That's pretty transparent of me more than you were looking for, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I know it was like, Mark, I, I started an exploratory down in Radcliffe, Kentucky, near oh, Fort yeah. Knox. God yeah. Bless you. yeah. And he's, all, he's also very introverted, if you can tell. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Well, I, I, I can talk to people, but I really don't like talking to strangers. Mm-hmm. So that makes it difficult for a, an exploratory too. And yet, and I think though too, that uh, I tell people, uh, I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't grow up in a parish home or, you know, I wasn't a pastor's kid, so I had no clue. And so if the seminary and the district sent me down there, I can only mess up like 25 people. And that was, <laughs> and that was it, but God, God blessed it. And that, you know, by the time I left, we had 70 people, which mm-hmm. over eight years doesn't sound like a lot, but we had people coming in with the military uh, at Fort Knox as a training post. So at most they would be there for three years and they might find our church in year two somewhere. And so we have them only for like a year and then move them on. But so we had like 140 members that came through. So God blessed us in that way. But, but then like you, I don't know what would happen with your, your church after you left, but from, for my church, then they brought in, uh, God sent another guy out of the seminary who took the church to the next level of being able to grow it, but then also take that building project and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very fine. My church had an, a vacancy for about a year, and that was just kind of a little bit difficult to live with, you know, just nobody pastoring them and <clears throat> some of the feelings that come with that. But but then a fine new pastor came along too and brought them back to where they had been. And um, I think they're vacant right now, unless I haven't heard that the most recent call has been accepted. So I'm kind of in that spot again. Pray, I pray for them regularly. So, One of the things I've always been wanting to ask you is um, you, you talk about, well, one thing you talk a lot about is communication. And uh, you, you said that that was something that fascinated you even from your childhood. Um, and the, the more I think about it, the more I realize how important that is like it, it does yeah, on your on your podcast you've talked about how uh it seems like such an obvious thing to uh that, that people pretend like it's an obvious thing like oh it's just talking or you know that that was in that that video <laughs> uh of the um epic rap battles of history where it's like <laughs> you teach people how to talk and but but that is that's such a challenging thing and and how is it that you uh, we're so fascinated by that even early on. Yeah, I guess more transparency coming your way. It's uh, it it uh, was not because this is what I was good at. It was much the opposite. You know, I was a kid that would stare at the other kids. You know, just a little on when maybe first grade, just thinking, how do they do that? How do they do what they're doing? Where does it come from? You know, lying in the bed, staring at the ceiling, trying to figure this out, and you never could. And so that's a, that's a tough situation. The children don't understand that behavior. Why is this kid looking at us? You know, by the time second, third grade comes around, you know, it just, it becomes anxiety, becomes more and more severe, I guess, what that does to you to be not doing well socially. Uh, I mean, I was rescued in high school. I think just one good godly wholesome friendship is just so transformative. And I'm not saying my childhood angst is any different than anybody else's, but, but it came from that place. It came from that place of a longing and a hunger to connect well with people and just not knowing how, um, where I kind of arrive is I keep saying transparency, What it kind of arrive is finding the strength in my weakness, you know, that 
not always, for example, not always knowing what to say to people, you develop a social style of being profoundly interested in them. Really wanting to know who is this person? Where do they come from? What's the story here? What does it mean to them? And that that's a gift in my weakness because it's not just finding a way to cope with deficiencies. It's you jump over that to really thriving. You can really thrive by developing that kind of an approach. And so it's it's sort of a lifelong study, not just of communication, but of the the finding the gift in our own cup, so to speak. And it's endless, and it, it is endlessly fascinating, and enormously complex, and deeply enriching to be immersed in the study. Partly because you never have to, like I just, I think I, like I just kind of did. You never have to stretch and strain to find the connection to biblical truth. It's just right so there. You, you mentioned yeah. you mentioned a cup. Would that by any chance be a love cup? Okay, you need to explain to your listeners the context of your question. <laughs> Yeah, the first time I got to see myself impersonated on the stage at Martin Luther College, which I knew would be part of my life when I took the call. It was somebody who lifted from my course the term love cup and just ran with it. And it was hilarious and also surreal to see someone doing me so perfectly. Mike, Michael, I've got another question uh, cocked and loaded. Uh, so if you want to jump in with any questions you have, I, I, otherwise I'm going to dominate it all. Uh, well, I've got I've got a question. So, you know, Mark, I listened to a number of podcasts, and one of the things I've learned is uh, when podcasters start interviewing other podcasters, and that's kind of what we're doing now, uh, interviewing you, because uh, you, you've been talking about your uh, about communication and how c- communication is both interesting and complex, and that's a, I think a good way of describing your podcast, where two or three. Cause I was listening to it and you know, yeah, this is interesting, but this is complex at the same time. So for our listeners that don't know about your, your podcast, uh, where two or three are, uh, why don't you explain that to them? Oh, well, thank you for that question. Um, so the premise of the podcast is <clears throat> that Christian thinkers, scholars or whatever, Christian thinkers deserve a place at the table of communication scholarship. That's the whole big premise. In other words, we have things to say about communication that other people are not saying, that there is a uniquely Christian view of communication. And so the podcast is for us to interact with scholarship, not at a deeper, profound level, but just to interact with what are people saying about listening and empathy and conflict and down the line. And then how does Christian truth affirm some of it? How does Christian truth complicate it? How does Christian truth turn a lot of it upside down? Um, but as I say, believers have been thinking about what it means to connect and interact and how to treat one another for thousands of years. And so we really do have a contribution to make. That's the premise of the podcast. All right, Jeremy, your question locked and loaded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm in an academic setting, like you mentioned, and I think this question would even apply with a parish setting. I know pastors in the parish who have gone on to get their, their doctoral degree while um, being, being in the parish. And uh, I, that's something that's encouraged a lot on my campus is to, you know, personal growth. And uh, at the same time, we were just talking earlier about what a toxic place the academic, the you know, modern American academic scene is, um, would you recommend, you know, pursuing 
a higher degree? Like what all went into that for you? And uh, is it something that you think is kind of just a, I don't know, is it, is it getting to be just a, what, what do you, what do you think about going, going to get your doctorate? Yeah, I think there used to be the practice that when somebody from our circles went off someplace else and did work at this level, that when they came back, there was this whole vetting process. Um, and we want to know what happened to the guy when he was out there in that pond, um, whether it was evangelical, like in my case, um, which was less threatening to a Lutheran Christian, or whether it's just, you know, secular scholarship. And so in other words, I, you got your degree from through a, a university or a system that was a Christian. Yes. Non-Lutheran. Yes, that's correct. And that was a ball. That was just just a treat to inter interject Lutheranism in various places and watch the room explode. You know, it was tons of fun. So also, you know, less threatening. I did this, I forget what age I was, uh, 2011. So, uh, you know, in my late forties, almost 50 when I started. So that's a little bit different than going off as a young person, maybe not as grounded in a lifetime of studying Christian truth and scripture. Um, I think a person ought to go in with their eyes wide open and, you know, maybe you talk to a brother or sister and say, if you notice things in me, we need to talk about it, you know, have my back. I think to be sober about it is probably really worthwhile. Usually when I give a conference or go someplace, I often preface it by saying, you know, I'm going to speak unguardedly because I hope that you will push back and test my thinking, help me refine the way I'm putting things because, because I have a certain sense of myself as well, you know, um, you pray the Lord's Prayer, you know, I, um, hallowed be your name. I don't want to be teaching God's name in a way that's confusing or false. And so I think it's a serious question. Um, I think I was profoundly blessed by the challenge of it at my age and life and so on. Profoundly blessed. I'd be a poorer man without what, I've, what I gained there. But uh, yeah, it does call for seriousness for sure. Could you, could you share one of those stories of the room exploding? Oh, oh, this was wonderful. I, <clears throat> so my advisor became a dear friend, was a former Pentecostal. Uh, and he said something in class. And then he said to me, uh, well, Mark, I know you don't agree with this. And I, I said, you're right. I never, I, I never chose to be a Christian. I never made that decision. And that wasn't what he was going for. He wasn't expecting me to say that. And the room just exploded like, what? <laughs> they sensed my, my, what Jesus means to me by that time. But why did, how did you never? And I, and I said, God shined his light into my heart when I was baptized as a little baby. I was in darkness and he shined his light into my heart with the gospel. And, you know, I kind of explained the best I could and they didn't know what to make of me. Um, but that night, come back to um, the hotel and there were about a dozen people in the lobby just you know just sitting around talking about the day and stuff and they called me over <laughs> and they just wanted to know more and it's like for maybe 10 minutes they were kind of challenging me and then and then it became just holding forth until like two o'clock in the morning and then it was more like just teach us tell us <laughs> so they were wonderful scholars they weren't really that deep as Christians, they were really, so there was kind of an openness to rethink a lot of things about what it means to come to faith and what salvation is. And what I was saying to them was, I think the kind of, not profound in a certain sense, any, any one of our students could have done the same. It was just straight up Lutheran thinking, you know? Um, and so that's an example of just really 
having an enjoyable experience inter interjecting thoughts that were so foreign to them, you know, that I, that all glory goes to God for every aspect of my salvation. It's just one of them. We've now come full circle back to uh, apologetics and being right. You know, having, having the Sunday school faith that uh, can move mountains. Very good. Right. Jeremy, you want to get into the gospel lesson? Uh, you sure. So, uh, Today we're going to uh, hear this reading from Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, for that reason, I tell you, stop worrying about your life, about what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Certainly life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no warehouse or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? And who of you by worrying can add a single moment to his lifespan? Since you are not able to do this little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not constantly chase after what you will eat or what you will drink. Do not be worried about it. To be sure, the nations of the world chase after all of these things, but your Father knows that you need them. Instead, continue to seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, because your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not become old a treasure in the heavens that will not fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Thanks. So, Mark, uh, what do you think causes, I'm going to ask you this specifically with like college students and adults causes them to feel anxious and worried. And then Jeremy, if you want to jump in later about what do you think causes young people, both teenagers and children, to become worried and anxious? So first of all, Mark. Well, I think the maybe the obvious starting point is the, the sinful flesh, the heart of unbelief. So I think, I think Jesus is addressing this very explicitly when he talks about the pagans who run after these things, right? The pagan needs to live obsessed with, how do I get the deity, whatever that is, to notice me? How do I get the deity to care? And it becomes this consuming thing because if if you're your own provider, if you're your own caretaker, that is, if you're your own God, on some heart level, in your bones, you, you must know you're not qualified for that job. You know, and so the things you care about most in life are not in your control. So what does that do to you? Does it set you free? <laughs> Or does it just flat out terrify you? So in contrast, there's Peter saying, cast all your care on him. It's a vivid verb. Like I say to students, throw your book bag across the dorm room. You know, just throw the book bag across the room. Cast, cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You know, if your first thought of God is, well, what is your first thought of God? If your first thought of God is that a father of infinite love and care is in this moment attending to me infinite affection well 
what is life like if you don't have any sense of that? Um, if you have baked into your thoughts very dark thoughts about who God is and very small and suspicious thoughts about who God is, I think that it's not difficult to draw the lines to a life with anxiety at the core of it. Now, people do find idols that can satisfy them in temporary ways. So we're not saying every pig is miserable. But ultimately, the things that you're living for will be taken away. And that strikes me as pretty in inevitable. So I think it ties to do you or do you not have a father who cares about you? This is the whole point of, of what you just read. So that'd be my first swing at this. The father knows all you need. And the point of Jesus seems to be that's why you can leave all that stuff to him and see to other things that are what life really is. You know, seek first the kingdom of God, the knowledge of Jesus, you know. Jeremy, what do you think specifically with like, say, high schoolers, what would they be anxious about? It's interesting that uh, you mentioned the, the book bag, uh, because that, that is a, a lot of what I see with the high schoolers walking into the building and walking around. They're actually not supposed to have their backpacks in the classrooms for, for safety reasons. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, they would maybe in some cases love to just chuck all that uh, away from them. Um, and and I, I'm trying to think just to apply it to our listeners, any of us, uh, something that you carry around. You've got all these important things in there. Like I'm looking right now at my briefcase as my lap, it had my laptop in it until I open it up now and I'm recording with this. And uh, that that's a lot of cares and worries right there. Um, whether it's my, my phone uh, that, that has all my contacts in it or my wallet that I'll need to, you know, have a license or credit cards uh, and uh, all, all of those things. Uh, it, it, to answer your question, Michael, it, the answer I think that the kids would most often give is homework. <laughs> and I think they're, they're trying to passive aggressively suggest that the teachers should be giving them less homework. But uh, nonetheless, I can see that, that, yeah, I bet, you, you know, you're, you're putting a lot on where you go to college and college is going to be dependent on how well you do in high school and high school uh, is made up of what grades you get. And so, yeah, I bet there's a lot of pressure from that. Well, yesterday I saw uh, the president of Shoreland at a funeral that I had, and I had a prospective student for him to call and talk to his parents. And I liked uh, Paul Scriver's answer when the mom was asking about certain things. And, you know, is there going to be drama, you know, with boys and girls? And Paul gave a great answer saying, well, we're going to give a Christ-centered education and everything's focused on Christ. And he talked about some other things. And then he was blunt and he said, but they're teenage boys and girls. So there's going to be drama. You're just not going to get away from that. And so uh, I think that's one of the things that teens could be anxious about. And then with Mark, what you were saying too, uh, I was listening to a podcast this morning while I was making breakfast and the podcaster made the point that uh, some <clears throat> university out East that is named for Thomas Jefferson, they want to get rid of the college students that are so woke they want to get rid of any mention of Thomas Jefferson, statues, name, and so forth. And the podcaster made the point, and I think we all like doing this, is we, we take away these really important leaders and we knock them down so that we don't have to reach up to them. 
Can we knock them down so they're on our level as opposed to, uh, you know, reaching up? And it, but there's just so many things that we can be worried about. You know, right now it might be high gas prices and high food prices, the economy, uh, empty store shelves, the wokeness that's in our that's infecting every part of our lives with uh, grade school, high school, college, universities, military, and so forth. But what I want to do next is kind of go through these verses and just uh, go, you know, ping around between all of us as we look at these verses is why does Jesus specifically tell us in each verse not to be worried? So we'll start with Mark uh, when he says, I tell you, stop worrying about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Certainly life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. What specifically is Jesus saying there of why we have we don't have any reason to worry, Mark? Yeah, I I mean I've been thinking a lot about this, sort of the epidemic of anxiety among our students and among us too, and where it comes from. And it's just the wisdom of Jesus is just so profound. For example, I was reading recently about the fact that there's a place in our brain where we go to ruminate. We just ruminate ruminate, ruminate. And there's a cycle of um, worrying thoughts to anxious feelings, just vicious, vicious, vicious circle. And it's that at some point in, in life, maybe at five, whatever, we became convinced that there's going to be a breakthrough. If I just keep at this ruminating behavior, I'm going to break through it and solve it. And, and so <clears throat> it's, it's learning to ask, what do I get from this behavior? This is what I mean by Jesus got there 2,000 years ahead of all this, this book I just read. And the answer is nothing. I get nothing from this. Who, who adds an inch to their stature? Who adds a day to their life um, by worrying? And so it's the fact that he's really telling us where to take our anxious thoughts. And the anxious thought, I've kind of already said this, but it really is all grounded in a father who cares for you. A, a, a father who has proven to you by the giving of the very one who's speaking, Jesus, that he's for you. He's for us really beyond what can be said. And so here you are bothering about clothing and yeah, why, why are you doing this? Kind of, you know, come away from there. So I, I think um, what I've been learning um, is what to do with a resting mind. And I think this section is kind of shot through without being explicit, but kind of shot through with, with gratitude is the opposite of worry, really. Gratitude is the opposite. And you know, don't be anxious about anything, but with Thanksgiving, give your request to God, to, to a father. You know, and so resilience is about doing the opposite of what our feelings are telling us. The feeling of anxiety is telling you, seek something else. <laughs> yeah. Seek something better. So I'm all over the place. I'm sorry, Michael. I well, with that, with that, uh, with the clothing, what came to mind was back when I was younger, uh, you know, if you had a rip in your jeans, you know, your mom sewed it up or cut them off, made them shorts, uh, threw them away. Now, you know, people are, you know, the young people are buying jeans, not just young people, I guess it's older people too, buying jeans that are purposely ripped. So all of those styles changed. My wife noticed yesterday that uh, fanny packs are coming back. And she said, fanny packs weren't cool the first time they came around <laughs> and now they're coming back. And, you know, all these things that we worry about with what we're wearing, again, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because as Christians, we're going to be exchanging whatever we're wearing now 
for the white robes of Christ's righteousness in heaven, those, you know, the symbolic white robes that we were baptized in. So all of these things are going away to something more permanent. So Jeremy, what about verse 24? What is Jesus specifically teaching when he says, consider the ravens, they don't sow or reap. They have no warehouses or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? That brings to mind uh, just other people that I've heard other men uh, preaching on this this topic. This well, this text comes up uh, also in Matthew's gospel, and uh, that was that was one that I had to uh, memorize for uh, catechism. I remember that was one of the longest slugs in in uh, catechism class to to memorize, and so I'm always attentive to this whenever I hear it, and um, I've heard the comparison made of you don't see birds uh, getting on tractors and uh, you, you don't see them uh, looking through catalogs of seeds. Uh, they, they find food without running a farm um, and, and they don't have things like uh, a phone with a, an alarm on it that can uh, wake you up in the morning. Um, they don't have all the wonders of techno. We've, we've got so many reasons not to worry about uh, how smoothly our life goes, and yet we still manage to end up doing that. And I think it goes back to uh, what Brother Mark was saying at the beginning uh, when we started talking about this gospel, uh, that you, and you, you as, a, as a pagan, uh, which we all are by nature, uh, you put yourself in the God role, and deep down you know that you're not fit for that job. Um, and so it, it just, it's a vicious cycle. That's really good. I, I, for what both of you are saying, one small layer to add is that sparrows are worthless <laughs> and ravens are unclean um, to the people Jesus is talking to. And so the fact that a father cares for them, um, I think it's another way of saying that the, the defeating of anxiety is rooted in not just a father, but in his, the profound way he cares. I have a question maybe for you two, just as a podcaster myself. <laughs> I, the question of of worth is just so interesting to me. Sometimes you hear a Christian wants to say, well, we must be worth something that God would send his son to save us. And I think that kind of misses the mystery and paradox because when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So wouldn't you have to say it is a mystery that, that the father does place the kind of worth in us he does when we were by nature worthless. So Am I saying that right, do you think? Or how, how do you think about the, the issue that kind of beats through this whole section of you're worth more than birds, you're worth more than lilies? So well, if Jesus, if Jesus oh. says it, then it must, you know, that must be a good way to talk. Um, the, the first thing I thought of was, uh, okay, yes, we, we must be worth something. Uh, but if we are, and you're, you're talking about, salvation and, and redemption mm -hmm. uh but if there's some worth in us even before salvation and redemption that can only be because of creation that god also created us um and and i, I just also thought of um something i once read in uh john gerhardt where he talked about getting back to the mystery angle of it that you just said um he he said uh what uh what a a marvelous thing it is that we must be worth more to God even than his own son because he gave up his son in order to have us. 
And I, for at least for me, that that brings back more of the uh, awe and mystery angle of it. Yeah, Father, let them know that you've loved them just as, <laughs> just as you loved me. So I, that's really that's very helpful. I so what yeah. you got me thinking is that when you have something truly good that has then become completely corrupted as happened to the human race you can still say this is worth something to me to for the cost of my son to redeem it so that's i've never had that thought before that's helpful and and i would i would do it this way i think just because of what i've done around my house is i'll take a lot of what people would say junk and then reclaim it. So say if you'd had an artist that had broken pieces of glass, they're worthless. You know, my uh, garbage man is coming in a little while and picking up all the trash and it's just broken glass that's thrown out. Unless you're an artist and then can turn that broken glass into, uh, you know, melt it down and make a blown glass vase or can put it together in a table or something that's beautiful or Last year, I did a bunch of projects. One of them was I took some broken chairs and some leftover flooring, and then I turned it into a bench. You know, it's garbage to anyone else. But if you're you're a master at doing things, taking something that's trash, like you said, worthless, turning into something now that's actually very valuable. And that's what we were as belonging to the devil. Uh, we were trash. We were set for the for the trash heap burning up in hell. And yet God saw there was worth in us to turn us into something fantastic. Uh, I just, just before Paustin, we started. Professor Paustin, if you're ever driving through the Racine Kenosha area and you need to make a, a bathroom break and you want to go to a truly Lutheran <laughs> bathroom, he has, he has a sink that was a former baptismal font in his bathroom. No he, turned, he turned a baptismal font into a sink. It sounds like it's worth the worth the trip to go see that. Yeah, I, I also uh, took an old pump organ and I turned it into a an organ bar, right right outside the, uh, the bathroom with it. Uh, I wish I had that skill set. Um, one maybe one other element before we jump off worth is I'm just noticing the context that Jesus is talking to his disciples. So if there were any difficulty there, that makes a lot of it go away as well. But your uh, analogies are very useful to me. And I just read a devotion this morning. It was in a different context, but I, I thought it was such an interesting thing that the the Wells devotion writer had of something C.S. Lewis had written about uh, a lot of times Christians view that we're just getting better when we're converted and we go through our life uh, of sanctification. And Lewis made the comparison. It's not like a horse that is just learning to trot and run faster. When we're a when we're a Christian and we're converted and sanctified, it's like a horse. And I think he said something like you put wings on it, like Pegasus and so forth. It's a total new creation. And I know I've had that discussion with people in church. They talk about, well, I want to be a better Christian. And I think we've been infected as Lutherans with the mindset of other Christians in America of that. We just go up and down. We're having a good Christian day. And now we're having a bad Christian day. And, uh, and I try and remind them, no, we're not better Christians or good Christians or anything like that. We're dead Christians. And then we're alive Christians. It's a total transformation. And that's, that gets back to that worth that once we were dead, but now we're alive. Yeah. Uh, I like that. I getting back in, 
getting back into the text a little bit, just want to go through some of these verses yet too. Uh, verse 25, I'll do that one. Jesus says, and who of you by worrying can add a single moment to his lifespan? When I teach people about worry, I just ask them, well, can you fix whatever you're worrying about? If you can, then stop worrying about it and just fix it. If you can't fix it, then should you worry about it? No, because you can't do anything about it. So stop worrying about it and just let it go. You know, it's easy to say, but just trying to get people in that mindset, if you can do something about it, then do it and stop worrying. If you can't, then don't and just give it to God and pray about it. Uh, because you can't add a single moment to your life. In fact, it's the opposite. Worry is going to take time away from your life. Uh, verses 26 to 28, Mark, what is Jesus teaching here? Since you are not able to do this little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? So what's he teaching about there of why we shouldn't worry? Oh, it's interesting. We we just had a in-service on our faculty at the college on resilience and the things you just said before, Michael, are exactly what we were talking about. Um, can I solve this problem? First question. Second question is now the time. If those are not both yes, then set this thing aside. <laughs> you know, then we, we learn to, the, well, then the answer is, if, if the answers were yes, then we go into problem solving mode, as you said. But if the answers aren't both yes, um, then we learn to have strategies to endure that. And what does it mean can, to can endure? Can I clarify, what was the second question? Um, is now the time. Okay. Yeah. So in elements of enduring include, for example, radical acceptance of my situation. Not saying it should be this or should be that. That's not biblical. Radical acceptance. The, the speaker we heard just made a really interesting distinction between pain and suffering. Where pain is pain, we have pain. Suffering is what comes from the, it should be different, you know, those kinds of, why, why, those kinds of things that we, we lose the sense that life is worth living. And so what I'm saying, reacting to your comment, is central to resilience. Is that distinction? Is this something I am called to address with everything I have, with my intellect and energy and whatever gifts God has given, or is it simply not? Then I'll commend that thing to God in this, again, the drinking of the cup, of, of accepting um, befriending my reality. Easier said than done. But I, I guess I would just, about the, the next verses, I, I just have always thought there's something really brilliant going on here. When you think about the triple comparison, it kind, kind of sounds funny to say Jesus is really smart here, but there's a, there's a rhetorical brilliance in saying, well, look at Solomon. Well, he's nothing compared to the grass and the flowers. So Solomon is nothing compared to the flowers. And guess what? The flowers are nothing compared to you. They're thrown into the fire in the end. And so that rhetorical device is just, you can think about that all day. And so there's back to, I suppose, Jesus as a com communicator. Um, that's what I've got on those verses. Okay. I just think the power of the images um, is kind of worth noting. I, I, what I heard you saying was you're kind of circling around to vocation, that if this is this is what's in front of you, can you handle it? Is now the time to handle it? That that kind of ends up talking about vocation, doesn't it? It does completely. 
Luther says, to see our, our own calling, 12 hands will not be enough. You know, we have enough to see too, um, not in worry, hopefully, but in, you know, in appropriate concern for what God has given us to do and think about and, and attend to. So, yeah, I see that there. Yeah, what you're talking about there, Mark, with, you know, being burned up, I'm going to be preaching on the epistle lesson from Hebrews 11. And because I was out camping with our church last weekend, and I was the only one in the campground, I think, in a tent. Everyone else had a huge RV camper. And we have beautiful weather. And yet, if it's not beautiful weather, uh, you know, tenting isn't a whole lot of fun. If it's really cold or really hot, if it's raining or windy, if there's mosquitoes or bears. And so I just made the comparison that uh, all these things that we think in our permanent homes, which are better, much, much better than a tent, but even all that stuff that can be taken away in a moment from heat, you know, fire or cold or wind or water, uh, an earthquake, a pl- I said it, a plague of mosquitoes, a plague of bears, but eventually, even if they last to the end, that's all still going to be burned up on the last day. So why are we so concerned about all of these things? And that gets to Jeremy and skip a few verses. What is he teaching then? If all of this stuff is going to be burned up that, and yet uh, we should treasure these things because God does give them to us. He's, he gives us three commandments to say, these things that I give you are blessings or gifts. So treasure them, but not so highly. He says, uh, verse 31, instead continue to seek the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. What, is, what does he mean there, Jeremy? Seek the kingdom of God. Uh, it's an, it's actually, uh, we think of kingdom, uh, the English word most often with geographical boundaries. Um, I guess we do kind of use it a little bit for, uh, categories of like, you know, the, the animal kingdom or something like that. But, uh, I, I once had a catechism student when I was learning how to teach at the seminary who said, actually the animal kingdom is a place it's down in Florida. It's, (laughs) Disney World, but um, uh, that that kingdom is an activity, and it's God's ruling activity in our hearts. Uh, So, a lot of what what I've been thinking about a lot recently is uh, that's really what we would call influence. That if if you want to call, if you want to say, God's, if you would like for God to have more influence in your life, that's really what His kingdom is. Uh, You're asking Him, please take over more of my decision-making. You want to add anything to that, Mark? Um, sure, I'll try. I mean, Jesus began by saying, don't worry about your life. You know, life is more than food. There's more life than that. And the more life must be his kingdom, right? Um, for me, it kind of triggers the thoughts of St. Augustine and the ordering of loves, which is, to say it's fine to love these things it's in a certain sense. It's fine to love career and family and so on, your house, whatever. But the ordering of loves is about what you, what's your first thing? What's in the top spot? You know, what, what is it you can't live without? What is your heart treasure? What is your heart set on? That anything else in that top spot besides the kingdom of God through the knowledge of Christ, it's going to eat you alive or you're going to destroy that thing by making it the ultimate thing, you know? And so I think the ordering of loves, the ordering of loves is a great concept. I think what with our Lutheran sensitivities we have to add is the fact that Christ must 
conquer that territory again and again and again. He must claim the top spot. You know, Jesus saying, unless you love father and mother, if you love father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Like, wow, what a thing to say. And, and so what we bring to this is a spirit of repentance. I do not love that way. And so I would think in terms of the church gathering around the means of grace in a repentant spirit, finding out how much we're worth to God by the giving of his son, that he is perpetually meaning to claim that in us so that we can say with, we can talk the way the psalmist talk, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Where's it, where's it come from to speak that way and to mean that? Well, you and I know it is the, the, the spirit working through the word that perpetually um, within a life of repentance constantly is, is giving us that, that liberating thing. It's a freeing thing to say, all I need is Jesus and I have him completely. What a liberating thing. So seeking his kingdom is is a powerful phrase, yeah. Right, yeah. And I think of seeking his kingdom with, again, I had a funeral yesterday for Joyce. And I explained to the family that when I give a Christian funeral, I'm not going to be talking about the life of the person, which is what now it's funerals have often turned into. I'm going to be talking about Jesus and the life of the person. So talking about Jesus bringing that kingdom to Joyce's life at her baptism and then her staying before the Lord's altar uh, every Sunday and then being confirmed before that altar. And then about eight years later being married before that altar with her husband. And I was really focusing on that phrase, the Lord's altar, because here was Don and Joyce that after they're married, they moved all around with Don's job. And yet they kept their kids in there. Uh, they had them baptized in churches. They confirmed. Uh, the, the kids remember not so fondly writing out the sermon summaries for the pastors during catechism class. But they one thing stuck out is how often that they may be up late on Saturday night with family. And yet mom and dad made sure everyone was in church. They were seeking God's kingdom. That they even started a mission church down in Birmingham, Alabama, that's still there today. And that was in the sixties, you know, Sunday nights in uh, for worship in the YMCA. But again, I use that phrase, the Lord's altar, that now she's in heaven before the Lord's altar with her husband. And it's just interesting because here was a, a lady with her husband that was so interested in seeking God's kingdom. And then you've got a great grandson who's there with you, Mark, at MLC, training to become a pastor. Uh, we, the family and I asked him, that he did a scripture reading and read Psalm 23 in unison, and then even gave a short eulogy at the end. Usually we don't have eulogies, but I figured he could do a good one. And yet those two generations in between the great-grandparents and that great-grandson, they're not seeking God's kingdom. And, and just trying to kind of put that into the sermon of reminding them how important it was to mom and grandma. It'd be good. It'd be good for you guys to have that kind of importance of seeking after the kingdom, the means of grace as well. You guys have anything else? Oh, go ahead, Mark. I'm just going to say what you're saying. It's not difficult to describe what it looks like and what it feels like. So it's the way you drag your poor half-heartedness to church 
the way that you open your scripture with expectation, you know, as a whatever habit, start of, the, start of your day with your first cup of coffee, whatever. That's what it looks like to, to have not just devotional time, but a devotional life in which we, in any way we can, are immersing in the knowledge of Jesus as it comes to us. So I couldn't agree more. That's what we're talking about, seeking his kingdom. Why? Because the Father sees to everything else. So he's freed us to do this. So then that last verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I think some of the problems we see in our culture today is because people are following their hearts, right? That's everything having to do with the anti-racism, which is really racism, the wokeness, the transgenderism, everything is following the heart. So how is this different when Jesus is saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? When people say, you, I think you'll often hear in high school and college graduation, not sermons, but speeches, oh, follow your heart. I think as Lutherans, we would say, that's probably the wrong advice because your heart is an idol maker, Luther would say. So what is Jesus talking about here then, Mark? Yeah, I would maybe step back a sec or a little bit and say, what? yeah, what is the heart? And I'm pretty confident saying it really is the same concept that you see throughout the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures that we hear heart and we with our English ears hear something about emotion, but but the Hebrew lave or heart really is everything inward that's inward to us. So it's intellect is part of it. Emotion is part of it, also the will. So what are we what do we desire most? I think so when you hear heart, you kind of in the scripture you kind of find yourself kind of sifting through all those possibilities. And so I think in the context, when Jesus is saying, you know, sell your possessions and give to the poor, because where your treasure is, your heart is, I think, I think of the will. I think of what, what we desire and find satisfaction in. And if it's just stuff of this world, I, I think Jesus is teaching in this verse, it doesn't say um, sell all your possessions. It doesn't say that. But I think as an attitude of the heart, it's talking about our attachment to stuff that we should, not like the word should, that we are given to live lives of detachment, lives of a letting go, lives that are generous, lives that are characterized by the giving of ourselves away. That these are the implications of having a father who's seen to the stuff you need. So you can, you can let go, sell to the poor, whatever that, sell for the poor, whatever that actually looks like. So I think it's about heart attachments is what I would say. I think it's about heart attachments. What is my treasure? Um, what do I turn all that inwardness toward, whether it's intellect, emotion, or will? That's kind of what I see. And so it's, could it, it be like it? Could it be like it, it's okay to? Is Jesus kind of saying in that last verse, it's okay to follow your heart if your heart has been rightly uh, aligned with what you you were saying before about the priorities. Um, uh, that uh, sorry, I, I jumped yeah, in I, there. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm having a little bit of, I'm having to think through the word follow. Is following the heart what's in view here, or is it simply be suspicious of your heart because your sinful heart will attach and seek things that it doesn't need to be, um, that are not good. Well, there's a heart of faith that sees Jesus for what He is. Um, and sees in the context here as well, sees an eternity God has prepared for us that is 
glad beyond all speaking. So set your heart on that. Set your heart on that. Um, because wherever you set your heart, you know, whatever you treasure, that's where your heart is. So I'm kind of struggling too with the words here. It's, but. it's not it's not really giving advice as much as it is saying assess assess your own heart. Yeah, well, I think that last verse, right, is is simply a statement of truth. Here's just a spiritual reality that what you treasure is what you direct your whole being toward. And you want to face that soberly because to set your whole being toward anything but the kingdom of God and eternity that lies open before us through Jesus, it's just it's not going to be what you think it is when you set your heart on the stuff of earth, the stuff of earth, let's say. Right. And that's that's the thing we're struggling with as as Lutheran Christians is the whole concept of that uh, sanctified heart versus the sinful heart. And so the key is to understand what is that treasure? Is it a good godly treasure, you know, something that's divine because it's coming from God? Well, then our sanctified heart is going to want that. And our s sinful heart wants nothing to do with it. If it's from the devil, the world, our sinful flesh, then our sanctified heart doesn't want anything to do with that, but our sinful heart, that's going all in. And so I think what I hear you guys saying is we need to be constantly evaluating everything all the time, right? Because and repenting all the time. Right, because yeah. if we're going backwards, you know, this is the last verse. I think as Lutheran preachers, we would do this in our sermons, kind of review, you know, what we've just, you know, the theme of the sermons, for example. So we've been talking a lot, this whole podcast and this whole text about worry. Well, if your heart is set on the right treasure, you're not going to be worried, right? And if your treasure is off and your sinful heart is following the wrong treasure, well, then you're going to be filled with worry. That's right. Um, can I offer an, anal an analogy? I, I read this in a book by a Chinese Christian watchman, Ni. And the book is called, I believe, Love Not the World. And the analogy, I think, is really kind of fitting here. He says, imagine that you are working for a company and you secretly know it's going out of business. So none of the promises the company's made to you about retirement or whatever, none of those promises will be kept. So you have a future, but it's not there with that company. So he talks about how well, you're going to put in your time, you know, you'll you do the stuff you're supposed to do. But in, in, your, in your heart, you know, I have a future, it's not here. And he's really talking about Noah, who is, lives in a world he knows is not going to last. It's the same thing. Goes about his business, goes about his affairs, building the ark and so on. But um, he knows he has a future, but it's not in the world. In other words, he, in his mind's eye, he sees the whole thing underwater. You know, for the New Testament believer, it's, we see the whole thing on fire. And it just it, it's meant to do something to our attachments to say what what lasts, what do I get to keep? You know, and it's it's people, you know, it's my own soul kept safe in Jesus by his word, and it's the people that I love and the people that I meet. And so I find that useful to just think about the world in those terms and it helps me it helps me not to love it, not to be invested in it in a in a certain sense, if that if that works for you guys. All right. Anything else you guys have on this gospel lesson you guys want to bring up? I think I'm good. <laughs> Same here. 
you can never say the last word. That's for sure. You can never <laughs> close down the meanings, but that was good, uh, good for now. <laughs> that was the thing I was thinking yesterday after I, you know, I said that you know, one of the college students from MLC gave the uh, short eulogy. I had given him some suggestions on the rock of ages was the hymn of the day that both his great grandmother and great grandfather who passed away over a decade ago had chosen. And so I said, I've been writing hymn devotions. And I know, Mark, you've got a book on uh, our worth to him that's on hymns, right? It's uh, on um, all of Lutheran worship, really. Okay. I'll, yeah. yeah. And so I, I we, uh, every week I write a devotion based on a hymn. I said, maybe you should uh, you know, tie in your words to Rock of Ages. And he did a really good job for you know, just a student in, you know, at MLC, but he didn't have a way to end it. <laughs> that was kind of the interesting thing. I didn't give any advice because it was his great grandmother's funeral. But you know, if I was in your shoes, all right, everything was good. Just got to have an ending because it was like he he finished it going, yeah. And that was it. And I said, uh, then it was, it was for me. Well, isn't that so what he, amen means? Amen. It means uh, uh, yes. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But that wasn't it. He just kind of said, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't know if you guys want to get in the epistle lesson or talk anything more about this gospel lesson before we finish, before we have a, an ending to this podcast. Yeah, we can't have an awkward ending. That's that's already been patented by another podcast. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. Is there time to to read and still talk? I don't. It's up to you. I think we're at an hour or more, probably. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, why don't we just finish up before uh, we don't really have time to get into the epistle lesson? But so, Mark, why don't you tell us about that book, Our Worth to Him? I've got it sitting on my desk at at uh, my office. So I don't know if anyone else has it but I think it's worth reading. Okay, thank you. Yeah, the intention is not to bind anybody's conscience as far as worship forms. We know from the confessions, we just don't, we don't do that. The intention is just to look at our historical, historic style of worship as Lutherans and just see what's there before we might thoughtlessly discard it. And that's not to put, that's to put it too negatively. It's really to take a tour of everything we do traditionally as Lutherans in worship and saying, what what does each thing mean? And so there are 60 devotions, so there's 10 on sort of a theology of worship as a place to start. What, what I'd like to think we could all agree about, that there are 10 on the seasons of the church here, Advent, Christmas, and so on. There are 10 on every component of the common service, you know, whatever, prayer, uh, sermon, just there are 10 of those. There are 10 on the people you meet in worship, so pastor, choir director, you know, and so on, 10 of those. Ten about the arts, uh, you know, why music, why hymns, why, why visual arts, and so on. Ten of those. There's ten that are kind of about alternatives, uh, the way to build variety into this kind of style. And there's also a preface and conclusion. So I think I got them all in. So it really is trying to be kind of, I, I call it in my preface, an ethnography, which is like you enter a cultural space and try to figure out what everything means, and then you write it down. So it's kind of an ethnography, so to speak, of of uh, traditional Lutheran worship is how I describe it. Well, that entices me that now I I have something to read. Uh, <laughs> I probably won't read it as devotions. I'll just read the whole thing all the way through because I was telling my wife that 
I'm going to be starting a adult confirmation class on Wednesday. And I've got like five teenagers and a, a number of adults. And it's a class I had written a number of years ago. And I set it aside because uh, our school chaplain was, has been teaching the adult confirmation classes the last few years. But it was one I had written called In, house of, in the House of the Lord, just kind of walking mm -hmm. our, our people through Lutheran liturgy. Uh, it was written when we were using a Christian worship hymnal, service of word and sacrament, and then the supplement, Divine Service One. But now it, it's had to be rewritten to use the uh, blue Christian Worship 2021. But it's trying to teach people, you know, what does the Bible say about, uh, you know, using the invocation. We mm -hmm. come together in God's name. And and I, I like the first time I, one of the first times I taught that story, I, I taught it or that lesson to Alicia. And toward the end of the lesson, I said, you know, in the name of the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when did God put his name on you? And she smiled and said, you know, Pastor, I know what you want me to say, but I haven't been baptized yet. So it was kind of neat how she had put that phrase together. And that's what I'm trying to do with that whole service. And maybe that's what you do in the book is to share that what we do in Lutheran worship is really just based on everything that God gives us in the scriptures. And there's a reason for everything we do, everything we say, everything we sing. Exactly right. So it's about having the gospel be dear to us and then having a heart connection to every element of what meets us in worship. And so, yeah, if I hope if my work is useful, I'd be grateful. Awesome. Yeah, we're on the same page. All right. Anything else you want to add, Jeremy? Uh, no, I think, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to digging into that book. All right. Thank you. All right. I think we'll wrap it up here. So this is Michael Zarling with Mark Poston and feeling lightened and headed. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>